If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. This is Tiffany Bova, author of The Experience Mindset, Changing the Way You Think About Growth. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Tiffany Bova to talk about her book, The Experience Mindset, Changing the Way You Think About Growth, published by Portfolio Penguin. Tiffany Bova is the global growth evangelist at Salesforce, a best-selling author, a highly sought-after international keynote speaker, and a podcaster. Her previous book, Growth IQ, Gets Smarter About the Choices That Will Make or Break Your Business, featured on episode 241 of the Marketing Group podcast in 2019, is a Wall Street Journal bestseller and has been translated into 10 languages. Tiffany is ranked on the current Thinkers 50 list of the world's top management thinkers and has appeared on MSNBC, Bloomberg, and Yahoo Finance and is a contributor to publications including Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and Entrepreneur. As host of the podcast What's Next with Tiffany Bova, she interviews really smart people, including several authors whom I've had the honor of interviewing, about what's next for companies and individuals as they look to innovate and grow. Prior to working at Salesforce, she was a sales marketing and customer service executive for startups and Fortune 500 companies. She also spent 10 years at Gartner, the world's leading IT research and advisory firm, as a distinguished analyst and research fellow where she helped companies such as Microsoft, Cisco, Hewlett-Packard, IBM, Oracle, SAP, AT&T, Dell, and Amazon Web Services to expand their market share and grow their revenues. And interesting fact, she grew up in Hawaii and she and President Obama attended the same high school. Tiffany, congratulations on the experience mindset, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome back, friend. I knew this day would come. Thanks, Doug. <laughs> so, Tiffany, let me, yes. let me ask you something. Is it true? You know Barack, don't you? You were in the same school as him, right? Yeah, he's older. So he's a little bit older. He's a little bit older, but I was a freshman. He was a senior. Yes. Okay. Well, that's great. And that reminds me. Thank you. Um, President Obama wants me to text him as soon as this interview publishes so that he can share it on uh, social media. And uh, Tiffany, you didn't hear this from me, but he would appreciate it if you would return his calls. So anyway. I keep trying. Yeah. Well, 
Okay. So uh, you were also on Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails in 2020 because, as you said, uh, I was talking to a lot of these authors who had nowhere to go and not as many people to talk to all of a sudden. And when I was interviewing you, you said you hadn't been to LAX in 80 days and you hadn't been at home that much in 15 years. But you were also drinking Hinano beer from Tahiti because you had run out of the Hawaiian beer Primo, which shows just how bad things were getting. Yeah, I mean, that's when times are tough. Drink yeah. Tahitian beer versus Hawaiian beer. The struggle's real. And I should add that you don't know this, Tiffany Boba, but you've been traveling with me because I have included a reference to your book in several, your book, Growth IQ, in several presentations I've done. And uh, up on the screen, there goes a picture of you in the book. And I get, you know, all kinds of street cred and credibility just by throwing it up there. But it is such a helpful book. It's really one of my favorites. So before we talk about the experience mindset, I do want to ask you about the book's dedication, because it really touched me. You have a quote from your mother, uh, quoting her saying, I could tell you to remember the million things I told you, but the most important is to be happy. Tell us about the book's dedication. Oh, yeah. You know, um, the book came out June uh, 6th, and, you know, everyone's like, oh, how does it feel? It's like, it's a little bit bittersweet for me. Uh, my mom um, passed away literally the day I turned in the final manuscript, so mm. she never got a chance to read it. Um, but I got six amazing weeks with her as she uh, was in her sort of final final days, and we had so many amazing conversations during that time, and that was literally the last thing she said to me. So I think it is just appropriate that we all just sort of each day uh, try to be happy. Well, that's a wonderful dedication, and no matter how much you think you might be ready for something like that, it, it, it really hits you like a ton of bricks. So God bless her. So I want to read from the introduction. And get started here. You write, as a global customer growth and innovation evangelist at Salesforce, my job is to study market trends to uncover best practices on improving sales performance and driving growth at companies of all sizes. My thought leadership role at Salesforce is the culmination of 15 years spent leading sales, marketing, and customer service for startups and Fortune 500 companies, followed by a decade researching and advising companies on their growth strategies as a research fellow at Gartner a technological research and consulting firm based in Stanford, Connecticut. That focus, or truth be told, obsession on helping companies grow has landed me on the Thinkers 50 list, not once, but twice. I've delivered over 750 keynote presentations around the globe to more than half a million people, and my ideas have been published in outlets from Harvard Business Review to Fast Company. I say this not to brag, but simply to point out that even with my years of experience, I too missed what was right in front of me all this time. What was it? The role employees play in sort of all those growth levers that I outlined in Growth IQ. I had 10 paths to growth and my very first path in that book was customer experience. And it was all, you know, the customer is your true north, put them at the center of all your decisions. And within that chapter, I briefly, and that's being kind, briefly <laughs> mentioned employee um, and the role they play in customer experience. But it really wasn't until I joined Salesforce and saw the power of the culture here in action and, and how that plays such a tremendous role in our ability to innovate, uh, our ability to remain extremely connected to our customer success. And then ultimately, the result of those things is we're the fastest growing enterprise software company. And so that put me on a two-year journey to prove out, I guess, something that I intuitively missed after all those things that you just outlined. You know, it was <laughs> it was literally like, you know, 
it should have been the 11th path in Growth IQ of the 10 paths. Uh, and so I guess this book is just my way of, of making that 11th path come to life. Right. Well, and I read this not to uh, repeat some of the things from your bio, because I thought this showed an awful lot of humility. You write also uh, in the intro, this book and its research-backed findings confirms what many of us have suspected about the connection between EX and CX, but have not yet been able to prove in bottom-line terms. It offers leaders a clear roadmap for achieving growth goals by identifying areas with the greatest potential impact and designing a robust strategy to go after them. After reading the following chapters, you will no longer experience the dilemma of choosing between being an employee or customer-first organization. With the experience mindset, you can reap the mutually amplifying benefits of CX and EX together to drive resilient growth. Now, in the introduction, you also write, and this is for the folks that are sitting there with their arms crossed thinking, oh, is this something I have to worry about? You write that companies can have good customer experience and poor employee experience and still grow. They, yes. they can even have good enough employee experience and good enough customer experience and still grow. So yes. explain then why they still need to pay attention to this. Yeah, I, I would say a couple things. When we started down the path of trying to show a, and I'm putting in air quotes, although it's a podcast, you know, the correlation or causation between strong and good engaged employees with strong and good customer experience leads to greater growth. We did a US study only of publicly traded companies, and I'll tell you why in a second, that we wanted to go out and look at publicly available information around like retention rates, growth rates, net promoter scores, CSAT scores, customer effort scores, right? Anything we could get our hands on uh, across publicly traded companies, the S&P and Fortune 500, et cetera. And, and we identified and put it on a two by two quadrant to say, those companies that had high CX and EX were growing at a 1.8 times faster growth rate than those that only had strong E or strong C. So for a billion dollar brand, it was like a $40 million impact. And if you're listening to this going like, I'm a $3 million company, I'm not a billion dollar brand. Like look at your growth rate now and then say, if I could grow it at 1.8 times, <laughs> would that be good? Right? So it may not be $40 million impact, but it could be a hundred, 200, $300,000 impact, which for a small business is a profitability. That is maybe the profit of your, of your year, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it really can impact a business, but what it also showed is if one was, you know, not as strong. So the E wasn't strong and C was strong. You were still in the 4.35, I think, CAGR or compounded annual growth rate of having one strong and one not strong, right? So, uh, or one good and not good. So that's why we say you can have great net promoter score and a strong customer experience. And if you're predominantly an online retailer and there's very little interaction with an employee, that kind of makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a really strong employee experience um, and your employees you know, are, are doing everything that they need to do, but there isn't a lot of time or opportunity for those employees to meet with a customer because let's say it is a remote business, let's say they don't have that ability to drive those great customers' experiences, then the customer experience may be good, but not fantastic, right? You could still grow. And so, um, and I think many organizations today, at least from the research, is really good at one or the other, but not necessarily at both. The mm -hmm. second thing you said though, 
And I'll give you an example is you have lots of really amazing brands that are growing exponentially, own categories, largest companies in the world, those kinds of companies, and their employees aren't happy. And you see it by what's happening in the unionization moves or the walkouts or, you know, all the things that we're hearing now, even as customers, we're going, wow, you know, like, I love that I can get my package in two hours, right? Or I can, uh, you know, order on an app and then show up and it's ready and I could get something in a drive-through, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the employees are happy, even if the company is growing. Yes. And of course, Amazon comes to mind. Yeah. They make the customers pretty happy, but the employee situation is a whole nother thing. So the, one of the, the lines from the book that you could just carve in stone is the fastest way to get customers to love your brand is to get employees to love their jobs. So let's go back just a little bit. How has the business world's growing focus on improving customer experience actually led to a decrease in employee experience? And I guess I kind of gave you a hint <laughs> when I mentioned Amazon. Yeah, I'd, I'd say this. Look, you know, I've been here at Salesforce for... Um, a little more than seven years, as you mentioned, prior to joining Salesforce, I was a research fellow at the Gartner Group covering go-to-market models, sales transformation, impact of digital to the way brands grow. And and I was uh, part of the team that made the prediction in 2008 that the chief marketing officer would spend more on technology than the chief information officer. And when we said that in 2008, mind you, that is a long time ago, people thought we were crazy. Absolutely not. The CMOs are not going to go buy technology. Like, what do you mean? Like search engine optimization or buying online advertising, you know, or, and, and we were not necessarily talking about the technology, although we knew they would start to buy tech. We were talking about the fact that we knew customer experience was going to become sort of the next battleground. We knew that brands, especially in a very commoditized or transactional market, would start to compete on different things. And customer experience, we knew, was going to be one of them. So the spend was, how do I, one, reduce the effort for the customer to do business with me? Either buy, get service, make a return, right? Anything that the customer needs to do with me, how do I make it easier using digital? What that did, if we reduced the effort for the customer, was their experience went up, right? Mm -hmm. It was such an easy transaction. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it more frequently. I'm going to do it more often. And I'm going to tell my friends, right? That kind of uh, return. Unfortunately, the unintended consequence of that, especially for small and medium businesses, was the fact that the employee effort actually went up. Meaning we might have taken the task off the plate of the customer and all we did was pass that task on to our employees. So while it got easier for the customer, it became more effort for the employee, which I'm sure you would get, right? The thread through this would be if the effort goes up, their experience goes down. So something like for me to do a return on a product takes me 20 minutes and I have to go in five systems and I have to get up and go get an approval and I have to then have someone sign it. And then I need to take the return information down to the warehouse so that they can do it. And so it takes me 20 minutes to do it because everything is either, you know, manual, disconnected, different, you know, data sources, different tools, et cetera. That makes it right more effort for the employee, worse experience. But yet the customer's like, oh, that was really easy. It took me three minutes to do a return. <laughs> Mm -hmm. But then that return hits the ticketing system of the call center agent, and then boom, it takes them 20 minutes. So we pivoted towards solving for less effort and greater experience for customer without understanding 
what that consequence would be to our employees, to our people. Right. So let me just quote from page 20, where you say, fundamentally, companies previously saw employees as an asset line item, human capital, that could be easily replaced if they left. Since March of 2020, business leaders are waking up to the central importance of employees and the totality of their employment experience, but they still don't fully understand what elements drive a superior EX, let alone how to measure or improve it. And there is still reluctance, despite the greater recognition of the importance of employees, to implement policies and tools that would improve EX. Why? Yeah, you know, part of this has to, so I didn't know, right? You know, like when we did this research, you know, what I loved about this project was the answers back and the findings were like, really? (laughs) Not at all what I would have expected. Because once again, going back to where we started this, right? It was a miss for me. I wasn't, I wasn't paying attention to it. So everything was very new and and, and somewhat intuitive, but shocking. And the two I would bring up is one, nobody tends to own employee experience within a company. So they're not looking at it. You have HR leaders, you have CIOs, you have chief, chief customer experience officers or chief marketing officers. You might have heads of sales or chief revenue officers, but you don't have anybody owning the experience of an employee. HR does pieces and parts of it, right? I mean, like what's your paycheck? When's your pay schedule? Like you need to take time off. Like you need to sign up for healthcare, all those kinds of things, onboarding, recruitment, like HR takes care of the, the human capital side of, of being an employee. But when you start talking about that example I just gave with a return, that touched many groups, right? Mm-hmm. Part of it was the CIO. Part of it might be, you know, the warehouse team. Part of it might be all these other teams that I then engage with. Well, who owns the connection between that? Who says, wait a second, this software tool here that we're using in the call center doesn't actually connect with the software tool we're using in the warehouse. So when someone needs to do a return and a replacement, how do they get the information from the call center tool to the warehouse team? Like, how do they do that? Who's asking that question? And so nobody owning employee experience was the first one that was painfully shocking to me. The second one was that we have been surveying and asking our employees, you know, how we're doing as employers and companies are capturing that information. And then the majority of them are doing nothing with it. But you're not recommending that there be a new C-suite position of the the EX person, right? Is that part of why you call the book uh, The Mindset? It absolutely is. Look, I was back to that 2008 story I just told. Um, We were really advocating for the chief marketing officer or chief customer experience or chief customer officer to get a seat at the executive table, not tuck under the COO or maybe even the COO, but to get a seat at that executive table to get the customer at the center of decisions. And specifically for tech companies, they were product-led, not customer-led. And making that transition required them to actually have a voice at the table where decisions were being made. And so I didn't want to advocate for a new role here because when you do that, it means sphere of control, budget, headcount, P&L, like it's a power conversation and a ROI conversation versus the, hold on a second, when we make decisions for our customers, what are the implications to our employees? So look at the tech stack in marketing and sales. Like it's not gotten smaller. I mean, when I started this thing called the World Wide Web, you know, I sold my first domain name in literally, um, 
1996, <laughs> 1997. Mm-hmm. Like I, I've been on this journey for a minute. I was Eloqua or Eloqua, depending on how you say it. I was their beta client. I was Constant Contacts beta client in 2001 and two. There was maybe a half a dozen, you know, web-based, if you will, MarTech products. There's over 9,600 that are tracked today. We do not have a technology problem. So it has to be a people process problem. And that's why I focused in on mindset. Well, let's jump to what you call the wood behind the arrow. And I love that expression. <laughs> I've never said, I don't recall ever seeing that before, but I'll be using it liberally now. What, what are some of the highlights, some of the other highlights from all the research that went into the book? And I tell you, the one that really jumped out at me was the disconnect between the C-suite perceptions and the realities of the day-to-day experiences of the employees. Huge. And, you know, the easiest way for me to describe it is for your listeners who have ever watched the television show Undercover Boss. Yes, that came to mind. And I started thinking every CEO should, should do that. Yeah, but just do it on their own. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like, Not the show. The TVs. Right. right. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, I, if you've watched the show, this will make sense to you, but they spend the first like sort of five to seven minutes, right? Telling the executive story, like about their family, where they live, who they are, that kind of thing. And then they spend a little bit of time, few minutes, you know, with hair and makeup or disguising the executive. And I feel like that's such a waste of expensive television because no one would recognize them anyway, because they never leave their office. Because if they had ever actually left their office and walked amongst their people, they wouldn't have found these things as a first time. Like, it's shocking to me. It's shocking to me, but inspiring to me that maybe this show is about, you know, maybe it sparks that curiosity of, my goodness, if I did that in my own company, would I find similar things? And so this disconnect is because many times leaders are so heads down, especially in small businesses, they're wearing multiple hats. They're so heads down in the business that they're not looking out to say, hold on, you know, am I just, I am working harder, not smarter. And am I carving time each day to, to reimagine how I do things, how my people do things? Have I spent, you know, 10 or 15 minutes every single day this week talking to an employee somewhere in the organization that doesn't work for me. Like you have to make the time and effort um, in order to do that. Otherwise, these glaring disconnects just manifest into things that get wildly out of control and you find yourself with toxic cultures or you can't recruit, recruit new people. You can't retain the talent you have. Everybody's unhappy. Like that doesn't just happen overnight. It happens from a consistent lack of focus on the things that really matter. When I read about the disconnect between the C- the, the numbers, difference between the employee experience and the CEO perception of their experience, it, it almost made me want to slap some of those CEOs or at least ask them, what would you say you do here? It's like, I want to say, what are you spending your time doing? So what are some of the things that do make for superior employee experiences. Yeah, look, I, in full transparency, sort of similar to what I said at the beginning of the book that you read that I had missed employee. I am not an HR expert. Like, it's not my wheelhouse. I'm a sales, marketing, and customer service executive that, you know, sort of moved into being an analyst and consultant and advisor. Like, HR has never been a wheelhouse I have spent any time in unless I'm in trouble. 
<laughs> let's, just, All right. let's, let's say that, right? So I am very specifically talking about employee and customer experience at that moment that matters when an employee touches a customer in some way, in a call center, on a sales call, in a service call, or designing a website, designing packaging, writing the FAQs, you know, putting the description in a box or the how-tos into a box of how to build something like anything that's being produced by a person that works for the company that then gets consumed, touched, used by a customer. At that moment that matters, that connection, that's what I'm talking about. So back to your question, what are the things that have the greatest impact on E during that moment that matters to improve customer? It's the things you would expect. It's the processes, it's the tools and systems and technology, it's the organizational structure, but it is also career development, training, collaboration tools, right? It's also the things they need to do their job and to do it in such a way that they're not burning out because it's just this repetitive, mundane, tactical uh, task they have to do over and over and over and over again that could functionally be automated if anyone was paying attention. But the average enterprise has some 1,000 applications, unique applications, enterprise, mm -hmm. and only 27% of them are integrated. <laughs> so who bears the brunt of that? Now, mind you, you know, let's pull HR and finance and thing, you know, that are not for everyone's consumption, right? Pull those off the table. So let's say there's, you know, some 800 applications still left and 27% of them are integrated. Who bears the brunt of that lack of integration? Employees, mm -hmm. employees. Yes. Yes. So, you know, those things that have the greatest impact and when they're doing their job, you know, whether you're a salesperson or a marketer, just say to yourself, how many tools do I have to touch a day to do my job? Is it one? Is it five? Is it 10? Is it more than 10? And if it's, you know, more than five, is it an integration problem? If it's more than 10, well, it's definitely an integration problem, but then you have process issues as well. And so that's where there is huge opportunity for very quick fixes in order to streamline um, what employees have to do to do their job when they're serving customers. Right. Well, let's jump into, you write in the book that you know adopting an experienced mindset requires nothing less than a true cultural shift. In other words, this isn't a quick fix, but if it is fixed, it can have dramatic growth. And the model that you have, which we'll talk about, is PPTC, which stands for People, Process, Technology, and Culture. And a lot of people may be familiar with the first three, People, Process, Technology, and you've added on culture. So let's talk about the people. And you started to, to touch on what is driving them nuts. I was wondering if you could tell the story about ClearCo's founder, Michelle Romanow, setting up an email inbox entitled, The Stupid Shit We Do. <laughs> can you tell that yes. story? Yes. Often when I tell this story, right, I can tell by body language and sort of facial expression that executives in their mind are thinking, ugh, like, <laughs> this is an expensive, long, arduous process. I don't have five minutes in my day for yes. space for anything else. So Tiffany, let's just say I believe you. <laughs> let's say I agree. I don't have any time. And the reason I picked Michelle's story is first, let me give you a little background. She's a 
double unicorn, so a $2 billion business she's built. She's out of Canada, founder, co-CEO. She's just stepped down as, as co-CEO. Now she's uh, chairman uh, of the board. But when she was in hyper-growth mode, she started to feel like things were not moving as quickly. Now, you may be like, well, she's a $2 billion business. She only had a little north of 100 employees. So it wasn't like there was 10,000 employees. It was So it felt and looked like a small business, but the revenue uh, was, was large. Okay. So mm-hmm. she said, how can I fix this? And how do I uncover what the problem is? Now, it could have been, I'm going to go hire a consulting firm. They're going to come in. They're going to analyze everything. They're going to give me a readout. You know, it's going to cost me this much money, et cetera, et cetera. We've all seen that happen. Instead, she set up this email box. As you said, stupid shit we do at innercompanyname.com. Tell me the one thing we can do better to make your job better, right? Less friction, less effort, more productive, you know, use those kinds of words. One thing. And so, you know, if you're listening to this and you go, well, I have a thousand employees, probably can't do this, but you could do it by team, by group, by location, right? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But that this was manageable. So she had somebody, right? A person manage that inbox. And she said, you have to do it by, let's say Friday, right? So it all came in. They took the next week to go through them all and then to sort of bucketize them in to categories. Was it process? Was it people? I'm using these terms. They didn't use these buckets, right? But was it tech? Was it culture? Was it, what was it, right? Mm-hmm. And then they sort of said, okay, here we go. And then they had a, you know, all hands company meeting and they said, here's what we found. Here's what we're doing. Here are the first five things we're going to do. Here on this side, here are the things we're not going to do. And here's why we're not going to do it, right? Because they're in a highly, they're in financial uh, fintech and finserve. So they're in highly regulated. So, you know, a few of them were like, we can't do that because of regulations. You know what I mean? Like, right. but not everybody knew the little ins and outs of that. So if you just say, we're not doing it and you don't say why, that's not helpful. Or you just ignore it got asked because you can't do it anyway and you don't share why, also not helpful. So what this did very quickly was it created trust. It created psychological safety. It created a very quick and tight feedback loop. It created goodwill, right? That, hey, they asked, I answered, they actioned, right? They fixed something Mm -hmm. where, you know, when you were asking me those big disconnects, one of them was they were doing all these surveys and then nothing was happening with the data from the survey. That was not this example. So this is a very quick way for you, anybody listening, if you have a team of five, ask the question, is there one thing we can do? And ask it all the time. Mm -hmm. Maybe every one-on-one you have, tell me one thing I could do. You know, I, I can't tell you how many managers have said to me, my role is to remove obstacles in your way. Great. Remove this one, right? Like just, I'm going to pick one, like do this one. And if you're not going to do it, tell me why not. And if you're not going to do it, but you're going to do it a different way, like maybe I can participate in making what's better for my role since you don't actually have to do what I'm asking to get fixed. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to do the returns. I do, right? You don't have to bounce through eight applications. I do. So it's great. You think we don't need to do it, but I do this every day. <laughs> so that was a great way and a great piece of advice on what can you do Monday morning that requires no money, just time. Well, let's talk about the process. I I wanted to quote, this just blew me away, this story about 
W. Edwards Deming in Ford. This quote from him was, 85% of the reasons for failure are deficiencies in the systems and process rather than the employee. The role of management is to change the process rather than badgering individuals to do better. Can you talk about what he did at Ford? I was not aware of that. Yeah, this is a long time ago, but uh, equally important today that I think we hear pretty regularly, especially right now, right? More with less, more productivity. Well, the reason people need to come back to the office to work, we need to see you working. Is that a trust thing? Yeah, we think there's better productivity and collaboration, you know, when you're at the office versus working remotely. You know, it's very much about that kind of productivity versus looking and saying, do we have the right process to allow that kind of collaboration to work in a hybrid environment? Does everyone need to be in the office, you know, nine to five, five days a week? Or can we do something where it's a week a month, every other week, three days a week, whatever, right? To in order to create that. But the leadership team at, at Ford at the time was very focused on the products because they were a product-led organization. Like mm -hmm. that, it's got to be about the product. Is it the engine, the torque, right? The, There's still a lot of that things. out there. There's, and which is okay, which is okay. Or is it the process that we have that's broken that doesn't allow our people to innovate faster, to be much more responsive to the market, you know, to do their job in a, in a much easier way? And when they started to look at the process, lo and behold, that's where it was broken. It wasn't necessarily broken at the products. It wasn't broken at the brand level. It was broken internally. And there's a stat that I had in Growth IQ that was from Bain that was like 95% of a company's inability to grow was due to internal inertia, not external factors. Mm. So while everyone's pointing to, you know, it's supply chain, it's lack of talent, it's my people don't want to work in the office, it's all of these things that we have to sort of reflect and hold a mirror up to ourselves in that PPTC framework to say, is our people, are they organized correctly? Are our processes supporting working hybrid now using the new technology? Did we just bolt in new tools without changing processes? Are we, are we a sort of design thinking process oriented organization technology? We just talked about that. You know, the executives think it's working great. Employees don't think it's working great. You know, so do we have too much tech? What does it mean to have tech bloat? Should we be integrating the thousand, only 27% are integrated? And then culture being last is, do you have a culture that almost like what Michelle did, that if things don't go right, it's okay. I trust the fact my employer will do what's right for us in the long run. So mm -hmm. it might be a little painful. So lots of layoffs happening, but if you got laid off, maybe, I mean, I guess you, you're not happy about it, but you're like, look, I know that my leaders, that they didn't want to have to do this. I've watched them be empathetic and transparent and vulnerable for the past five years. I just got caught up in the realities of business right now, right? Versus not understanding why you got let go. Mm -hmm. That That's a culture comment, right? So I think that that's why I broke it up into those four categories. So you could sort of deconstruct under each of them. And, and Ford was my example under process for obvious reasons, because- the executive team was focusing on the wrong thing. He came in and said, hold on a second. Like, I'm a process guy. Like, let's look there. And lo and behold, that's what it was. Oh, it was just so dramatic and so quick. Oh, unbelievable. Well, one thing I want to ask you about 
is uh, there's there's a variety of things in the book that talk about how to you know some process related things that companies can do to improve the employee experience. A lot of listeners are going to be familiar with uh, customer journey mapping. Talk about this idea of employee journey mapping. Yeah, this goes back to what I was saying a little bit ago, right? Having that marketer or chief customer officer at the C-suite, and we globally have spent, you know, we, the collective we of businesses have spent billions of dollars on customer experience technology to map a customer's journey, you know, listening, you know, cart abandonment rates, what's the click-through rates, SEO optimization, like we could CAC. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on of all the things we've done to understand the behaviors of our customers, right? If they're doing it right, yeah. Okay. Have we done the same thing for employees? I get the impression they haven't. And you have this great example of this uh, company in Australia that put a great big map up on the wall. And people could come in and say, well, no, that's not what the employees are doing. This is what they have to do, which was, it just seemed like it was uh, quite revelatory for the, for the management. Yeah, and, it, and that's what it's all about. So if nothing else from this book, right, the goal was f- for the reader to just literally say, if I success would look like, I'm going to pause after we make a decision for our customers to see what the implication is for the employee. And if people could do that, I feel like we will get closer and closer to more organizations having this experience mindset. Yes. If they would just, somebody would ask that. If that mindset can just slip in somewhere into that boardroom where somebody might say, wait a minute, uh, (laughs) what about the employees? Oh, yeah. In fact, it brings to mind Amazon, not to beat up on Amazon, but there's the story. And I've heard from uh, people that worked in the rooms with uh, Jeff Bezos who said that one day he said, I want one empty chair in the room. Yes, correct. Uh, to, to represent the customer. And right. invariably, he would point at the chair and say, hey, 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 you're forgetting about the customer. Well, it's almost like maybe we need to have two empty chairs <laughs> where they can say, wait a minute, what about the employees? So, correct. yeah, you've, you've talked about the, the technology and you know about how, you know, despite all these technological improvements, air quotes there, the employees are bearing the brunt of these customer improvements. And there were a couple things that, one thing that you mentioned, again, that you say companies that have invested in new tech, but whose employees are still frustrated by the technology likely have an integration problem, not a technology problem. Again, you touched on that earlier, but I wanted to uh, restate that. And for me, one of the most Interesting, but probably most challenging things from that section was where you, you write, people shouldn't feel overwhelmed by technology. Instead, it should work so well that it seems like it's not even there. Yes. But it seems like the impulse is to want to just go spend money on technology without even thinking about the people or how it's going to augment an existing process. Yeah, look, I mean, it's not lost on me. I work at Salesforce. Clearly, we're a technology company. <laughs> but I would say this, that I'm going to you know, give a few stats. And I kind of gave a little bit, gave a little bit of my history earlier, right? I've been in sales marketing and customer service for tech for um, almost 30 years, literally. And, and I would say to you that, you know, I used to use, you know, an Excel spreadsheet, bubblegum and post-it notes. And then I graduated to a single user version of ACT and then Goldmine. You know what I mean? Like I've, I've been on the journey of using technology, but let's just say since Let's call it the last decade. Let's just say the last decade. Look at how much has changed in sales and marketing technology 
that we use. And let's just pick on sales technology as an example. Quote to cash, CRM, right? AI, like there is so much that has has come at us. During the time that technology has gotten far smarter, far more capable, more robust, more scalable, more intelligent, all those things, still 28% of a salesperson's time is spent on non-selling activities. I mean, I'm sorry, only 28% of their time is spent on selling activities. Sorry. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the, the remainder of it is on non-selling activities. Okay. So only 28% of their time is spent on selling activities, which means, you know, a lot of their time, three quarters of their time is spent on non-selling activities. During that same period of time, 54% of salespeople will miss quota pretty consistently. It's been 51, 52, 53, 54 you know, over the last decade. And that number of percentage of time spent selling has also remained. You know, it was 32%, it was 28, it was 24. You know what I mean? It just kind of bounces and moves. But with all those improvements of tech over the last decade, how is it that those two metrics, how much time spent selling and quota attainment has remained flat? You talked about that in growth IQs, as I recall. The numbers have actually gotten worse because it was they were spending a little more time selling when Growth IQ came out. It was like it was thirty two percent. Now it's twenty eight percent. And so we have we've done a disservice, um, and which is why you asked on the tech side, right? Like, how do we allow the technology to do what it was really built to do and it's intended to do? And that requires managers, leaders, and executives to say, hold on, like, is the technology actually making us more efficient and effective? Is the technology allowing us to serve our customers better? Is the technology making it easier for us to do what we do? And if they just can't go, well, I think so. Well, I hope so, right? Like that they go, absolutely. Because when we pre-deployment, you know, deployment, we were 28% of our time spent selling. Post-deployment, we're now 40% of our time selling. Because I would guess if you could give back 20 or 25% more time for a sales rep to sell, my gut tells me <laughs> you'd get quota improvement. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we wrap up, let me just ask you about culture, which for me seems like the hardest of the four, uh, if, I, if I had to pick one. And you quoted Lou Gertzner, former IBM CEO, who turned it around, who said, management doesn't change culture. Management invites the workforce itself to change the culture. And culture means different things to different people. You write that culture refers to the beliefs and behaviors that determine how employees and management interact both internally and externally with other stakeholders. The one thing I wanted to pull out of here if uh, in our remaining time to ask you about was you conducted, as part of the research, a regression analysis to understand what parts of employee experience affect customer experience and ultimately company culture. And they are trust C-suite accountability, alignment, recognition, and seamless technology. So I, I was sort of marveling at how specific you could be, and I thought this is helpful for someone who wants, maybe a CEO who wants to start trying to tackle the culture. Yeah, this and those five, uh, again, thank you for saying them, right? The trust, C-suite accountability, alignment, recognition, seamless tech. Once again, this is at that moment that matters. That is not all the pieces and parts of an employee's you know, uh, employment that have impact. This doesn't talk about pay and compensation, although you may say, well, within recognition, right? If I do a good job and I make more money, right, I'll get a promotion. Is my C-suite accountable? Are they doing what they say and saying what they do? Do I have trust? 
like what Michelle did, right? And building trust between her and the employees and the executive team and the employees by asking, listening, actioning. The alignment around the values, you know, do we, uh, you know, if we say we want to be one of the most sustainable companies, yet, you know, the practice in the organization is not that. And ultimately, they had and they were the levers we could tie directly towards the day-to-day of an employee and the experience of that customer. Mm. Yes. Well, Tiffany, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I'm going to give you the answer in Growth IQ. The one thing about growth is it's never one thing, um, which is my way to answer that. But if you were to get one thing, I think I just said it a few minutes ago. If you just all of a sudden go, wow, we do a lot for our customers. We talk about them a lot. We just don't do remotely the same level of conversation and interest into employees. So if we could just do a little bit more each day, each week, each month, each quarter, each year, a year, two, three from now, it will look like a very different organization. Yes. Yes. Well said. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading now that you've got time to maybe read books since you finished writing yours? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I what's what's crazy was when I was doing preparation for this book, I read a ton of books, which is what exactly what I did for Growth IQ to just get a feel for what are people saying and where can I fill in some holes versus mm-hmm. do I need I don't need to repeat, you know, everything that's already been said. How do I kind of modernize what maybe has already been said? And I just haven't come up for air to start reading again, but I do have a stack of books. The the book I'm that is sitting on my desk right now is Seth Godin's new book, so that's probably going to be my next one. Mm-hmm. Because I just I have a pile because grateful that people send me their books. I just can't get through all of them fast enough. Uh, but that's the one that's sitting at the top of the pile right now. Oh, and his book is the Song of Significance. That is the one. Yeah, a new manifesto for teams. Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually a great companion to the experience mindset. You know, Seth uh, endorsed my first book, Growth IQ. He was the cover quote for my uh, for that book, mm-hmm. and he was super instrumental in me writing that first book. So when we, start, you know, kind of said, "Hey, hey, I got a new book. Send me yours. Send me yours." Kind of a thing on this one, we both laughed that we must have been drinking the same juice that day because it was it was a very uh, connected storyline. Oh yeah, and you quoted him in your book here. And I also know he was one of your very first podcast guests, so that's he great was. to hear. Yeah. Well, all these links can be found by going to this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. We're going to include a link to your your website, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account. Listeners, please reach out to Tiffany and congratulate her on the book and make her day. Guests on the show love hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote, page 214. Company managers and C-suite leaders can no longer continue to improve the quality of their customers' experience without an equivalent improvement in their employees' experience. That customer satisfaction is plateauing and will soon begin to decline because organizations haven't given commensurate investment and attention to the satisfaction of their own employees. The book is The Experience Mindset, Changing the Way You Think About Growth. The author is Tiffany Bova. Tiffany, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you for having me back. Always a fantastic conversation. Thank you. 
And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune.